Hello there from lockdown in Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interesting interview. I've got Jonathan Levin, the co-founder of Chainalysis. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up today, it's Cointracker. And a massive thanks to John, Chandan and EJ for supporting the show over the last couple of months and ongoing. And I caught up with Chandan the other day and quite a few of you have been registering with them, registering your interests. You've wanted to use Cointracker for tracking your tax. And also, I do understand the arguments that some people are saying, why are you supporting a tax company? So listen, I'd made a show with Chandan. If you want to find out more about Bitcoin tax, do go and check that out. I know some people are frustrated by this. They're like, you shouldn't be supporting a tax company. You're supporting the man. But look, the reality is some of us out there do pay our tax. We don't want to go to court and we don't want to go to jail. And I've got a company. I cannot not pay my tax. So Cointracker was amazing for me. It was so easy to set up. I loaded up my wallets and my exchanges. And within two minutes, it had calculated my tax. Filings work for the US, UK, Canada, and Australia. And listen, if you've got less than 200 transactions, it's free to use. But if you are one of those mad traders with insane numbers of trades, you can still get a 10% discount. You just have to use the link cointracker.io forward slash A forward slash WBD. Cointracker is C-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-K-E-R. Also, we have my new sponsor, sportsbet.io. You know who these are. They are the company that put the Bitcoin logo on a Premier League shirt. The absolute badasses. They've also invited me to a couple of games. Down at Watford, I've seen them play Liverpool. Sadly, Liverpool lost. I've seen them play Tottenham. Sadly, Tottenham didn't lose, but I enjoyed it all the same. And do you know what? When I was down there, they turned around to me and they're like, Pete, we want to sponsor your show. And I was like, cool. Betting company. I can bet Bitcoin every week on Tottenham losing. I'm in. And then since then, look, we've had this coronavirus thing and all sports has pretty much stopped. And I was thinking, look, there's no way they're going to go ahead. I spoke to the guys and like, come on, Pete, we still want to sponsor the show, which is super cool. So I signed up. I am now a massive fan of Russian ping pong. <laughs> and listen, look, not only do they have Russian ping pong, they've got markets for esports, including eFIFA. They've got the Bitcoin casino and my personal fave, the poker rooms. And also I talked to the guys this week. and I was like, come on, can we do a what Bitcoin did poker tournament? And they're like, sure, we can. So this Sunday, 8 p.m. UK time, 7 p.m. GMT, we have a What Bitcoin Did poker tournament at sportsbet.io, and there's going to be one Bitcoin in prizes. If you want to register, if you want to join the tournament, just head over to my website to find out the details. It's whatbitcoindid.com forward slash sportsbet. I will put this out on Twitter. Also, if you want to find out more about Sportsbet themselves, just head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Okay, so onto the show, and today I have a Jonathan Levin from Chainalysis, and this is an interesting one. I've actually wanted him on the show for a while. I'm not a fan of the company, and I wanted to grill him with some questions, but I just never thought he would come on. And last week, I received an email from the company, and they asked if he would come on. So I was like, yeah, of course. Gladly accepted. So I do give Jonathan a hard time in the show, and putting aside what I think about the company... I do give him a small amount of credit for, for taking it on the chin the way he did. But look, I don't like the company, and that will come across through the interview because I give him some pretty tough questions. Now, if you don't know who Chainalysis are, they are a blockchain analytics firm that specializes in the scanning of the network and tracking and reporting illegal or questionable activity. They work with exchanges, they work with businesses, law enforcement and governments. 
And most of it I don't like, but I specifically do not like the government stuff. Now, the reason being is that for me, if you're a Bitcoiner and you're building a company that gives government data to erode away your privacy, I think that's actually antithetical to Bitcoin. And listen, I was clear with Jonathan. I told him I don't like the company. I told him I think they're bad for Bitcoin. And I don't buy some of his arguments. I, I really don't. Now, my personal view is that whatever crimes or criminals you're helping catch, is it worth giving up the privacy for everyone else to do this? You know, privacy is tied to freedom. And, I, I, you know, I put these two, Jonathan. I put this during the interview. So listen, I, I'm not a fan of the company, but he stepped to the plate, he defended their work, and I don't think we need to ever see eye to eye on a company like Chain Analysis, but it was interesting to have him on the show all the same. So listen, I'd be interested in your feedback on this. If you, uh, There might be some of you out there think they're a good thing. God knows why, but maybe you are, or maybe you just say... Uh, you're one of those people who just thinks that it's inevitable to have a company like Chainalysis. Whatever it is, please do feel free to feedback to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And I hope you're all coping with the lockdown okay. I mean, I'm getting pretty bored, but I'm just working hard here, working on new shows for What Bitcoin Did, but also stuff for Defiance. I've got a new film coming out in the next couple of days. I've got a film about what happened when I went to the Turkey and Greece border, so check that out. Please do check out Defiance Podcast and my Defiance films. They're at defiance.news. And if you've got any questions, you want to reach out to me, it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Doing very well, Peter. Thanks for having me on the show. No worries. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I wanted to talk to you for a while, actually, and uh, so it was quite interesting that uh, you guys came to me and asked to come on the show because there's quite a few areas I'd wanted to cover with you outside of this rather strange time we're in right now. So not everyone will know who Chainalysis is. Some people will, but probably a good starting point is to explain who the company is and what they do. Sure. So, you know, I started Chainalysis with Michael Groninger and Jan Muller. The three of us have been had been in cryptocurrencies for a long time. And you know, what we found was that cryptocurrency businesses were unable to get bank accounts with financial institutions to, you know, increase the adoption of cryptocurrency. And what we decided to do was start chain analysis to help cryptocurrency businesses assess their anti-money laundering uh, obligations by understanding how and why people use cryptocurrencies to have them get greater access to financial institutions and help governments around the world essentially you know, combat the abuse of cryptocurrencies and protect the most vulnerable in society. And so what we do is we provide anti-money laundering software to cryptocurrency businesses and financial institutions and we provide investigation software to law enforcement to protect the integrity of cryptocurrencies okay and the range of clients is cryptocurrency companies and governments are there any other companies you work with yeah we also work with financial institutions so i think what's important to remember when it comes to preventing the abuse of cryptocurrencies is you have really every stakeholder has a role to play. So it's not just it's not just that we rely on the government to you know protect us. We regulate 
cryptocurrency businesses and financial institutions to help with identifying abuse of cryptocurrencies. And then the, um, you know, that is shared between the different stakeholders. So what we do is we provide the necessary services to the cryptocurrency businesses and the financial institutions and the government so that we can have a fair and open marketplace. When did you launch as a service that cryptocurrency businesses could use you? So we we launched the business in 2014. So we've been around for, for a while. The original product that we launched was a product called Reactor, which is uh, a broad solution where you can really understand you know, where money is coming from, what what services are involved in cryptocurrency transactions. And that was used by cryptocurrency businesses and law enforcement at the time from, from early 2015. Okay. So what are the rules that a cryptocurrency company has to follow to be able to get banking services, it's not they're not obliged to just use chain analysis. Um, surely they can have their own practices in place, and you're providing more of a turnkey solution for that. Yeah, so so the obligation is to understand the riskiness of particular transactions and report suspicious activity to the regulator. Um, so a business needs to when they're when they're meeting their regulatory obligations, or when they're opening a bank account, they need to be able to prove to those people that they are doing an appropriate amount of due diligence on their customers. And what we have done is really create a standard of what that should look like when it comes to assessing money laundering risk from transactions on the blockchain. Is it public knowledge of which companies you work with, say any of the exchanges, or is that private information? So that's 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 private information. We don't we don't okay. typically we don't typically disclose our customers. Um, yeah, there are there enough. are some that we are public with, but yeah. Can you can you list any of the ones you are public with? Yeah, we we publicly we work with people like with Bitstamp and other top exchanges that that would be, you know. Brands that you recognize, many of the top 10 cryptocurrency exchanges use our, use our products in order to assess the risk of, okay. of their client. But, but they're not obliged to. They can, they can do this themselves and they can be subpoenaed for information by the government and, and deal with it privately, I guess. So the question is whether you, you build systems to be able to identify risky activity and the types of systems that the exchanges can implement themselves are about sort of activity on their platform. What we are the experts in is identifying why some of the customers and what is the activity behind the cryptocurrency usage. That is almost impossible to determine if you are a cryptocurrency business without building the intelligence of what other services are existing on the blockchain. So if you, are oh, an ex- okay, yeah. if, you, if you are an exchange, yes, you can understand what trade activity, what devices are being used, you know, who your customers are, you'll do some due diligence gathering their IDs and, and KYC information. But you won't be able to tell what other services 
they are engaging with when they come to your platform. And so what we provide is the ability for an exchange to understand if the cryptocurrencies being sent to that exchange are coming from a darknet market, a child abuse material site, a ransomware campaign, but also it's also determining, you know, are they are they coming from other exchanges? Are they, like what is the what is their use in terms of like the activity that the exchange should be aware of when assessing the risk, but also understanding sort of how their customers are using cryptocurrencies. So if they if they're not using you, are they unable therefore to follow the regulations because they're unable to know where the money has come from, where it's been used. And we'll just refer to cryptocurrency as money here. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think increasingly that that is the case, that it it's not, you need to have appropriate measures. And I don't want to make broad statements depending on exactly all of the different business models out there. Uh-huh. But typically, yes, if you are not using something like Chainalysis, you are not meeting the obligations in most in most countries today you need to be using that in order to assess the risk of your customers and the benefit of chain analysis is that you guys can aggregate all the information so you've got the the biggest picture available of what's happening with on all of these blockchains correct okay great so in terms of your customers are there any limitations to which countries and governments that you would you can work with or you would choose to work with? Um, obviously, my expectation is you can't work with Iran and North Korea, but are there any other limitations of countries that you would choose not to work with? Yeah, I think that we we obviously are a, a US company, um, and so the countries you mention are countries that are on the sanctions list. We obviously need to meet our obligations as a, as a US company for complying with sanctions. We also take a stance that we have to think from a, from a business standpoint and from a moral standpoint, you know, what are, what are good customers for us? And we, we vet that all the way across, you know, the different, the different customers. It's not just with governments. It's also with private enterprises. We, we think about, you know, who makes a good chain analysis customer. And, you know, when we, when we see, different countries come to us, what we'll do is we'll take a view on you know, whether we whether we would want to do business in those countries. And we have a committee internally made up of individual stakeholders that go through and say you know, whether we should be um, engaging or not engaging with those countries. And obviously, you know, sanctions in general is quite a fast moving, evolving landscape. You know, that, those are the types of things that we need to keep an eye on uh, as a business. What other things would concern you? What are, what other countries would you be worried about getting? So let's try and think of a country, perhaps someone like Turkey. Does that present any challenges for you, as it's a country which, yeah, has, has, has kind of fallen down that slippery slope of authoritarianism now that Erdogan has essentially put in place a dictatorship and restricted the press? Is that the kind of one that would be a difficult choice, or is that a is that a simple choice? I think it's a difficult choice, and I think that you know one of the reasons why it's a difficult choice is that again, partly you know you've got to be able to assess the rule of law in that place, the amount of you know the amount that that actually holds, the amount of individual freedoms, and you've got to be able to also assess your 
exposure to sanctions risk. And you saw with Turkey, for instance, that Turkey became you know, subject to US sanctions. And that moved very quickly to and from, and it's very complicated to navigate. And you might say that, you know, that becomes something that you don't want to actually deal with because there are more important things to focus on as a business. Does some of it come down to, and like, excuse the question, but does some of it come down to who the US is friends with? And are you obligated to receive any kind of approval for who you work with outside of the obvious sanctions list? Do you as a company have to, every country, go and seek approval to work with them? No, I I, I mean, so um, I think that when when you think about the world, yeah, it's quite easy to sort of divide the world into, you know, you know, friends of the US and not friends of the US. I think that um, yeah. I think that that can be helpful just on the broadest strokes of you know where does rule of law exist? Where are there democracies? Where are, where is there you know freedom of the press and and other types of freedoms? I think that I think that that is helpful. Um, you know, as a business and actually in ter- in general terms, like the US government doesn't give instruction to companies to do certain things. I mean, it, there's very you know big limitations on what the government can actually instruct you to do as a private company. So, um, yeah, we don't okay. we don't typically we we don't need to do that. Yeah. So, for example, I would think of someone like Consensus who proudly celebrated their work with Saudi Arabia. Is that a country you could work with? You know, I think we could work with Saudi Arabia. You know, with we, I would have to understand like exactly what the use case is, and you know, are we talking about the private enterprises that operate in Saudi Arabia, or are we talking about the government and what part of the government? Yeah. And so I think that you know, but that wouldn't be uh, that would be something that that we would assess based on you know an individual case. Yeah, because that's that's a difficult one, and there's a few ones I look at that are quite difficult. So my country sells arms to Saudi and Saudi has committed a genocide in Yemen. And it, sometimes the judgment depends on who people are friends with. Uh, Israel is seen as a friendly country to the US, but others see the oppression of the Palestinians. So I don't imagine that these are easy decisions that you as a team have to make. Sure, But, but I kind of wonder how you come to those conclusions. Yeah, and, like, and, For example, and, could, you, could you work with Israel? Yeah, I mean, so here's here's the thing that I think about is, you know, we're in a we're in a position where actually, you know, the types of crimes that are being prevented or prosecuted using our software are crimes that actually are universal in nature. That actually there is a huge amount of collaboration internationally across a lot of the lines that typically you would never see collaboration over you know if you haven't looked at the welcome to video case which was the largest takedown of a child pornography site and you look at the different types of countries that were involved in you know taking taking the evidence that came from chain analysis on who was paying for content on that child pornography site you saw collaboration between nations that you know you might have a problem with sort of Israel or Saudi or or any of these countries, but we're not going to have a problem with the US or even the US. Um, But you're not going to have a problem with them saving children's lives and preventing them from harm. So that's where, you know, it also comes down to, you know, are we selling, 
we're selling into preventing cybercrime that actually has victims all over the world. We're preventing child, child abuse material distribution. That Those types of things actually go and transcend national borders. And there's enormous amount of collaboration between people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be collaborative. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, you know, I would never disagree that taking down a child porn network is uh, is, a, is a bad thing. It's obviously it's it's an amazing thing that that can happen. Uh, it's a scourge on society. But there, I guess what I'm getting at is there is a a trade off here as well in the loss of financial privacy. People will often point out that is a a loss of freedom, and that freedom and privacy are linked, especially with financial privacy, because financial privacy is linked to freedom of expression. So I guess I guess where I'm leading with this is to, is is to say you've talked about it's used for crime prevention, but different countries have different laws. So for example, smoking weed in the US is in most states legal now or decriminalized. In the UK it's still illegal. So how do you actually set the balance of what is what it can be used for? Does the country say here is a list of the uh, the crimes we want to track? Can you help us with this? Or do you only have a set list of crimes that they have to choose from which they can use the software for? So so, so we are, yeah, and, and it's a good point that you put at the end there, which is like, we are a software company. We're not investigating these cases ourselves. Um, so we are we are building the tools that, that these countries use. And, and typically, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go through the criminal statute of every country and say that you know it all needs to be aligned with my personal view i think that we need to rely on the idea that these are democracies that have rule of law that have certain things that their citizens need to abide by you know i think that those are the types of things that that we we look to support where we sell to a country um, you know they need to they need to sort of enforce their their laws in their local uh, in their local country and you know we are ultimately going to take a view at that you know, that rule of law in that country and that social contract is for that country to decide. What are the rules of somebody using the software? So, for example, say uh, is it a case that things are flagged to them or? Are people also able to follow and investigate the blockchain and follow the data as they choose, or is it both? Yeah, so so you know, for for our private sector clients, typically what we're what we're doing is they are getting alerted to different types of activity and rules that they want to monitor for. So they might be they might be looking for a payment coming from a ransomware campaign into their exchange. They would get an alert in Chainalysis KYT, which is our transaction monitoring solution, where they can then go and investigate that. And typically, that system of alerting and then clearing those alerts and dealing with them and making an assessment is sort of the workflow that a cryptocurrency business will do. The same actually also applies to the financial institutions. You know, for financial institutions that are banking cryptocurrency businesses, you know, they are also looking at how am I exposed to any activity that is going on on the blockchain? Yeah, I want a high level view of this. And if something major changes on the blockchain, either there's been a sort of 
sanctions risk or there's been sort of a major change in activity in one of my clients on the blockchain, you know, let me know on a weekly or, or monthly basis and, and I'll go and investigate. And so from a compliance standpoint, that's really the workflow is you, you get alerted to certain changes, certain abnormalities, and then you go and investigate that. In the government side, most of the time, this is something that where they start an investigation based on some information that they already have, and then they build an investigation out from there. So, but that, that information is obviously potentially confidential. They can't tell you what the information is, or do they have to tell you what the information is? No, they don't, they don't necessarily need to tell us what the information is. You know, they, we, so we're, a they, software, we're a software company, and so they, they yeah. sort of do the investigation themselves. Because one conflict I'm worrying about is you're working with different governments who may have some kind of information locally. They want to interrogate the blockchain, but they're potentially interrogating data about people who live in a different country. So, for example, say you say you have an investigation, which is, I mean, I don't know the countries you work with, but say that you do work with a country which isn't the best of friends with the US, but not you know not an obvious an obvious target. If they had, were doing an investigation, but that meant investigating the actions of people who are based in the US, how does that work in terms of a conflict? So the way that that works is, um, and, and actually this is sort of the difficulty of cybercrime investigations in general, is there are typically multiple jurisdictions involved. If you have, say, um, you know, a particular website may be hosted in one country, the operator might live in another country, there might be a victim in another country. And mm -hmm. so these crimes definitely are global in nature. You know, take the welcome to video case again. You know, the administrator is based in South Korea. There were victims in, you know, actual sort of children based in 20 or so different countries there were people buying the content in even more countries. You know, you've got to be able to coordinate across all those national boundaries. And the way that that actually happens in these types of investigations is they, they may know from Chainalysis, they understand what are the exchanges, what are, what are the services that these people are using to use cryptocurrency. So what are the exchanges? Maybe what are the merchant service programs? What are the you know, darknet markets or, or whatever is involved in the case? They, they get that information from chain analysis. Now to, to request the information about the individuals, there is something called the uh, multilateral assistance treaty, the MLAP process, where that actually is a legal request that gets sent between countries to get information from the local uh, country about individual people. And that needs to go through a legal review and protects the privacy of individuals. What about domestically? How is the privacy protected of individuals? So say if a country was doing an investigation on somebody domestically within their country, how much information can they get about that individual from the software is that possible so that so we don't collect in, we don't collect information about individuals you okay. chainalysis collects information about you know, how how people are accessing cryptocurrency services so we're really mapping 
out the services in cryptocurrency and allowing people to go to those services to obtain actual personally identifying information that that business themselves collect about their customers. And so... So you don't collect any of the KYC information itself? We do not collect any KYC information from any of our customers. You just have an ID which is linked to their own KYC we have, database? We do not necessarily even have that. So we have information about which addresses are controlled by which mm-hmm. services. And then when someone is doing an investigation, they will be able to see, okay, you know, this, this UK-based exchange, the specific you know, UK-based exchange was involved in this transaction. This is the transaction ID that they're interested in. They will go and ask that exchange, you know, which customer was responsible for that transaction. And that exchange will need to reveal that information to law enforcement in that, in that process. And the other side of the transaction, your, how are you identifying what types of transactions are being done? So, for example, what you know, what the you know, what the the cryptocurrency was being used to be spent on. Yeah. So, um, typically, that that comes down to the different type of service that is being that is being run. So, there are merchant service providers that I don't know particularly necessarily what good is actually being sold on those merchant service providers. So we recently did a study about sort of the impact of the, of the COVID epidemic on uh, and market movement on how merchant services have changed. And we actually saw a change in the way that they behave during this time. Now, I can't say exactly what was being bought and sold during this time, but my thought is that you know people are spending more time at home. They might be buying more digital goods and services that they might be using cryptocurrency for, or they might be you know the normal ways for them to buy goods and services at this time may be interrupted, and maybe there's some ways that services are using cryptocurrency to be able to to gain access to to other goods and services. So we don't necessarily know exactly what is being bought and sold on those merchant service platforms. But if, for example, there is money going to a darknet market or money going to a credit card market or a marketplace that sells personally identifiable information or, you know, a service like that, then, you know, there are single use services that exist out there where we can we can give more information about you know, what is actually being bought and sold. Because what my worry is, is that I don't think you can guarantee that the software can't be used for oppressive purposes. Yes. It can't be used by governments to build patterns around people. I, but neither can you guarantee that any form of technology can't be used for oppressive, surf, for oppressive use, right? I think the internet can be used for oppressive use most generally. So, you know, I think that we we take a view that we actually enable better trust to be built in the institutions that are around cryptocurrency. We build the ability for exchanges to be legitimate regulated businesses where, you know, consumers can really trust and gain access to cryptocurrencies. We build the way for you know, governments not to outright ban cryptocurrencies, but see it as a, you know, 
legitimate medium of exchange and store of value for people that can actually create new markets in the world. And we build that in order so that people can actually have faith and adopt and benefit from the advantages of cryptocurrencies. And so, you know, yes, there can be collateral damage in that. And yes, technology is always dual use, but that is the goal in, in how we make decisions. So you, in terms of the trade-off between privacy and crime fighting, you feel crime fighting is more important than privacy? So I think that privacy and crime fighting are actually, in an interesting way, in, in Bitcoin specifically, actually fairly well balanced in the sense that, you know, I've seen personally through the use of chain analysis, you know, many lives been saved, many sort of crimes been prosecuted that should be prosecuted for the protection of society. And at the same time, I don't think that we have limited the amount of privacy that actually individuals can have when they actually use Bitcoin. So do you know about how I got into Bitcoin? No, I actually don't know the story. So my mum was dying from cancer and we wanted to get a, a, a cannabis oil treatment, which is obviously an illegal product in the UK. The only way I could get that product was a dark market and using Bitcoin. It was the only way we could get, get that purchased. But that would flag me as a criminal within your system. So that that would that would flag it wouldn't necessarily we don't flag criminal activity we flag activity now if you are based in a country if you are based in a country where the rules say that you cannot do that that is something that you have to take up with the country that you live in rather than like something that chainalysis says like we will never we never flag something as criminal we don't make criminal okay. determinations well, well, no, but, well you, you do, kind of. You, 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 you put criminal flags up because your tool is for helping fight crime. So it's a, it's a flag that a potential crime has happened, this needs investigating. Which yeah. means if... So there's every chance there is data about me within chain analysis as a, somebody who may have committed a crime at some point. Yes, but that exists independent of chain analysis, right? So the, the fact that you may have at some point used Bitcoin to buy something from someone, you know, that, that exists as sort of evidence forever, like on the blockchain, you know, yes, it may have been picked up by us, but, you know, it's not the fact that that thing happened is something that exists on the blockchain. Not necessarily inside chain. Exists on the blockchain. Well, my point being more is that that you you are you are happy to to build tools for governments to track us and destroy financial privacy. And my concern with it is because I, I kind of the thing the thing I want to ask you is that like are you a Bitcoiner or are you a somebody as a company that provides services within the Bitcoin industry or do you consider yourself like a, a Bitcoin person? No, I, I consider myself a Bitcoin person. I mean, I wouldn't. I don't think I would be running this business if I didn't think that there were actual benefits to the industry existing and us being able to actually grow the 
size and sophistication of the industry. I think that you know our mission our mission is really to build trust in the industry. It's not to um, not to ban Bitcoin or or do anything like that. What what we're here for is to say that I think that there is an amazing balance and and actually Bitcoin constantly evolves in this way is that um, an amazing balance where you actually have the ability to increase the amount of and variety of financial transactions that people can do in a world of cryptocurrency. And that is something that I think is really important in the current state of the world. And what we need to do in order to realize a lot of those goals and ambitions for the technology is to have ways to mitigate the abuse of the technology itself. You know, Bitcoin can be what, used. What, what Bitcoin can like be used. About? Bitcoin can be used for good and bad. You know, I don't want North Korea like, building nuclear weapons because of cryptocurrencies. I want to be safe. I don't want. I don't want people to have easier lives to distribute child pornography due to cryptocurrencies. I don't want people to be able to hold hospitals to ransom during the COVID crisis because of cryptocurrencies. I want a system in which we can mitigate those types of risks and realize the benefits of something that is decentralized, resilient, and where communities of people from around the world can connect and transact in ways that they couldn't have done before the invention of cryptocurrency. Next up, I talked to Jonathan more about chain analysis, but before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors, but let's talk about the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin, the only place I use to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Have you checked out their mobile app yet? It's been available for a few months now. It is beautiful. It is the easiest way I've found on my mobile to trade Bitcoin now. And you can do it wherever you are. Whether you're sat on the couch binging Netflix during this lockdown, or you're going out for your daily walk, sitting in the park just to get outside, with Kraken Pro, you can trade Bitcoin on the go. And you know what? Despite the price volatility out there, the crisis has seen a huge surge in interest in crypto. And Kraken are hiring. They're looking to increase their workforce by 10%. Now, Kraken doesn't just have this mobile app. They provide a broad suite of tools for trading Bitcoin, from Kraken.com to the Kraken OTC desk. And they are also the most secure crypto exchange. They provide world-class customer support. Come on, there isn't anywhere better to trade Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And lastly, this week, and never least, is the amazing BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And this week, I'm recording with Zach and Flory. I'm going to be talking to them about market volatility, what that meant for their business, and what their views are on the current state of the Bitcoin markets. Now, with BlockFi, you have access to their interest accounts, which lets you put your crypto to work and earn monthly interest of payments with your Bitcoin. And they also have crypto back loans, which allows you to access liquidity without selling. By using your crypto as collateral, you can unlock up to 50% of the value of your assets in USD. They've also got a mobile app coming. They've also got their Satsback reward credit card coming. BlockFi are going to crush it this year. If you want to find out more, then definitely do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. What is it you like about Bitcoin? 
So the thing that I like about Bitcoin, the, the, the way that I got into Bitcoin initially, um, it wasn't quite the same story as you. But yeah, yeah. the, um, the way well, I actually, got... mine, mine goes one step. Sorry, mine goes one step further back. My introduction actually was uh, buying cocaine on the Silk Road. Uh, I used to uh, be a bit of a drug in. I stopped it, but then when my mum got sick, I was able to say to my dad, "Oh, I know a way we can get a treatment." So that's the actual. Sorry, there's a backstory to that. Okay, so yeah, my story goes a little differently to that. So my story goes, um, I I really got into Bitcoin as an economist. And when I got into Bitcoin in, in about 2012, there was no serious economist looking at cryptocurrency, no, no serious economist looking at Bitcoin. And I said, well, actually, Bitcoin asks some of the best fundamental questions about the way that money should work, the way that technology influences how we do monetary and fiscal policy, how you know, actually the internet architecture and backbone of society is going to be structured in the future. Like this is fundamentally an economics question that we need to answer. And the more I looked into it, the more I found that Bitcoin continues to make some of those questions, questions that really do need to be asked and also answered. So I found that, you know, it is a technology that is resilient it constantly, you know, fights off against so someone says like Bitcoin's dead. And then, you know, it's not, I mean, it, it is decentralized. It is incredibly resilient. And I think one interesting thing in, in the current, you know, world that we live in is that we are seeing, you know, we're doing this podcast. You're sitting in your room. I'm sitting in like my room, we're on other sides of the world. The only thing that's connecting everyone right now is the internet. The only thing that people are talking about is resilience and decentralization and innovation and the types of things that we're going to need to put in place as society to weather this storm. You know, those types of things excite me that actually in those environments where we need resilience, it's not necessarily going to be a central institution that's going to be able to provide that for everyone. And that actually, you know, cryptocurrencies can have a moment in providing more resilient systems to unite people over the internet. So that's why, yeah, yeah, that's why I got in. Sorry, I was just going to say, I I mean, I I mean, I I don't care about cryptocurrencies. I'm I'm Bitcoin, right? So like all the others, I'm, I'm not too fussed about. So with Bitcoin, why is decentralization important to you? To me, I think that without decentralization, Bitcoin is not an interesting, not as interesting a piece of technology, right? I I understand the need in certain parts of the world for people to have access to, you know, a flight to safety or a store of value. Um, I understand those types of things. I see, I see Bitcoin as a really interesting global market that every person can interact with in the world. Like it's the only global market that's available to every single person in the world. You know, that that's what makes Bitcoin interesting. Hmm. But but again, sorry sorry to pin you on this question, but why is decentralization important? Well without decentralization you don't get something truly global in nature. So well, that's it, not true. There's plenty there's, there's plenty of things that are global in nature that, that aren't decentralized. Like 
Give me a good example of a market that's truly global in nature well, where everyone, where every single person in the world can participate that's not decentralized. Okay, okay. So, sorry, I see your point. So you're saying because it's decentralized, everyone else, whereas if it's like the stock market, you have local laws and regulations. So, but I guess what I'm trying to, I'm trying to ask you is that why is there a need for a global decentralized market? Why can't we just build one on the internet without decentralization? Like, what is the power of decentralization? Well, the power of decentralization means that you you effectively build a system that actually at the at the most basic level is permissionless and is and is accessible to everyone. And then as it becomes sort of adopted in different parts, you know, local regulations get built on top of that. And that's basically what we have in Bitcoin is that we have a, an underlying system, which I think is great, which is, you know, permissionless, decentralized, there's no one controlling it. We have the ability to innovate on top of it and build markets and have people interact freely on it. We also have you know, those people live in. So you think? So you think permission? Sorry. So you think permissionless is important? Yes, I think it's very important. Because. Because otherwise, you don't get something that's global in nature, and you don't get universal participation. You don't get the ability for people to build communities and use cases that are something that people should be able to do. Because I think where I'm going with this is like that's that's why I I like it. It's permissionless. The other thing which you didn't mention, which which maybe because you can't, is that I think decentralization is important because you don't want governments to be able to shut it down. Yeah. Because this is something that sits outside of government regulation. Hence why I could you know buy treatment for my mother. But then if that's what you care about, I don't understand then why you would want to build the tools which erode those benefits but they don't erode those benefits because actually you know the people that are interacting with bitcoin in their local places like they you know to some extent you know need to need to and if you're running a business particularly you know you need to be able to comply with the local rules and that is the nature of how bitcoin has gone from you know an irrelevant social like science experiment to you know, a global asset class that actually people care about. And yeah, but it does erode because now, if I had to buy a treatment now, because this was back two, three years ago where I didn't even know the blockchain could be analysed, I do know now, and say if my father got sick and I wanted to buy a treatment for him, I couldn't use Bitcoin now because I know, or I know I'd have to take that risk because I know your company may flag me up to an exchange as someone who's potentially committed a criminal act and then I might have the police knocking at my door. So it feels you need- like that you're actually you're undoing the, what Bitcoin has enabled. So I think, I mean, you know, I think that you, you sort of take the decision to do that. Like there, there are many things in the chain of buying, buying something illegal on the internet and getting it delivered to your door that you're going to need to think about. I mean, you're going to take some level of risk there which I think is fine. I mean, you know, if you want to make that risk and you want to make that decision, you know, that that's how that's how you want to that's how you want to live your life. Like that's okay. Um you know, I Yeah, but what I'm saying is you've you I I explained how I got into Bitcoin and you've undone your company has 
undone one of the things that I'm able to do. The, the reason I came in is I, that is now like a much more risky thing to do. Because Bitcoin isn't really about the state. Bitcoin is about the individual and it's about enabling freedom. And financial privacy is tied to freedom. And by providing tools for governments to erode away at our financial privacy, I believe you're undoing what the benefits, some of the benefits that Bitcoin have created for people. Not just me, though. There's people in different places. There's people under religious oppression who may be using it to buy religious material maybe to be able to protect their finances. There's all different things where we have to separate what is a moral judgment and what is a local law. I, I'm i pretty sure if we surveyed Bitcoiners and said, asked them, what do they think about my use case of buying a treatment for my mother? They would highly support me. And then I think if we surveyed the same people and said, well, what do you think about chain analysis? I think they would be slightly against you. I mean, look, you, you must have fielded questions like this all the time. There are people who... Th- think your company is evil and they've said you're evil i just i just i can't see the connection between claiming to be a bitcoiner when bitcoin is a tool to to kind of claim back some of our civil civil liberties that you would then build a company which gives tools to the government to erode those civil liberties again that's what i can't that's the connection i'm struggling but but there is there is this all over the internet i mean you know, like we we try and make doesn't you know, make it the internet make it the internet, the right. internet let, let, no, but let, let's just like because you know I take I take it pretty seriously that we we build a company that I think helps actually make the technology more usable, makes it more trustworthy, makes it something that actually you know more people can mm-hmm. have access to in general in the world. I mean, you know. The fact that the fact that you know there are millions of people who use cryptocurrencies around the world is actually somewhat due to the ability for governments and businesses to assess the risks of their customers and to protect society really? against. Yes, you, I mean, you, you want you honestly believe that? Sorry, so I, I find that you, I find that a bit of a stretch. You find that okay? So I think that. If you really think about it, so when I when we first started getting into to cryptocurrency, you know all of the all of the problems that businesses had was gaining access to actual financial services to be able to get people to be to get people access to cryptocurrency to Bitcoin. Okay, so. In the early days, you know, you needed a way to get between pounds and Bitcoin. Now, if the government bans Bitcoin because they think that everything is illegal, or the bank won't bank any cryptocurrency business because they're too high risk, you have a fraction of the population that would be able to actually gain access to cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin specifically. You know, the the ability for people to mine Bitcoin in their own homes and then participate in the Bitcoin network long sailed. So you need an ability, a much more widespread ability for financial institutions to be able to interact with Bitcoin in order for there to actually be adoption of Bitcoin. If, if If you think there would be as many people who have interacted with Bitcoin today, if there were no link between financial institutions and Bitcoin, 
you know, I'm I'm slightly challenged to see how people would have been able to access Bitcoin. I'm not saying that the regulatory environment hasn't made it easier. I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is the trade-off worth it? Because if you keep close to a lot of the developers working on Bitcoin, what they're focused on now is privacy. It's trying to undo the work that you've done, trying to stop you tracking people. Um, we've seen it recently with the ability to track people using CoinJoin. That these are the tools they're trying to build to give people financial privacy. Because yes, we have this global financial system that everyone can access, but really, it's a tool where people are coming for financial privacy or seizure resistance or censorship resistance. And censorship resistance without privacy doesn't really exist. But there is privacy, and and most people entrust their privacy. So the actual privacy in Bitcoin is is actually you know as I said, we don't collect any individual information about you know peter or, or tom or, or bob right so we're only collecting it at the service level where people are using you know third-party services in order to gain access to cryptocurrencies now that is the majority of the activity and the reality is is that it does even if you know using a third-party service is not you know how bitcoin was intended maybe someone needs to use a stepping stone between them getting into this space and then taking it and using it on their own wallet or something like that. And what we enable is the ability for those third-party services to actually have a business and to actually provide services to people. And actually, it's the, the privacy of individuals is really you know, protected by those institutions that are also in many parts of the world regulated so that they have to protect the privacy of those people. So Andreas, I was, I was watching an Andreas interview earlier, and he said if you give the government power over money, they will use it, and in their countries where the government is a criminal, they will use it to oppress people. Separating state and money should be a no-brainer. It is not yet. And we're having to learn the hard way. So I'm going to just go back. See, this is where I wondered why you're into Bitcoin, because I'm into Bitcoin to give people freedom. And... I still believe you're building the tools that take some of those freedoms away. So why do you think most people in Bitcoin see your company? Like, you must have heard them call you evil, but and they have. Like, Why do you think people think you've got an evil company then? I think, I think sometimes there's, um, and you know, part of the reason to come on your show is to, is to talk about exactly what we do and, and to give you a sense yeah. about what we actually believe in. And I think that people sometimes look at the business and say that, you know, and, and don't necessarily understand what we do and think that we track individuals when we do not. And, you know, I think that the, the reality is, is that we, we help all of the businesses in the cryptocurrency sphere be more respected, legitimate institutions that broaden the amount of access to cryptocurrencies. And that actually, you know, helps everyone in the industry. And, I think that, you know, I think the importance of, of privacy is there. I think we respect that on for, for individuals and we respect that for businesses and the people who, um, the people that are, are using cryptocurrencies as businesses in their local jurisdictions need to abide by the local laws and need to be able to access financial services. And that's where, you know, 
I think we are very aligned with the growth in the industry. A couple of side questions. What do you think of WikiLeaks as a company? Are they a company? Um, well, okay, as an organization. Yeah, I mean... So, for example, when, when, the, um, when it was leaked that the US Apache helicopter, when they essentially murdered two Reuters journalists alongside other people, do you think the, the, the freedom of that information is a good thing? Yeah, I think I think freedom of information is a good thing. You know, I think that as any organization, though, there are sort of political problems and and other types of things that that come up. And you know, but I do believe in the principle of of uh, freedom of information. Yeah. Do you think it would be important, therefore, for you as a company to be transparent about the governments you work with? I think we are a private company that that has to abide by laws and legal arrangements that we have and you know i think we i think we also have the you know we make we make business decisions that ensure the survival of our company so well so the business decisions about the survival of your company is a is a priority yeah my fiduciary responsibility is to make sure that this company survives and thrives that is that is my fidu- f- that, that is my just- legal obligation to my shareholders okay and is your fiduciary responsibility, does that outweigh the potential? Because you've said you can't guarantee the, the software isn't used for oppression. Does that outweigh the need to protect individuals under authoritarian regimes? Because, I mean, half over half the world now lives under authoritarian regimes. And there's no way we can, you've got this wealth of information. There's no way anyone can know whether or not you are doing business with a dictatorship and whether or not you this this is being used for oppression that's one of the things we can't guarantee I yeah. mean, can you categorically say you don't work with any dictatorship yeah we do not work with any dictatorship under any circumstance yeah what about what about I, uh, countries which have questionable histories of human rights abuses so, so i mean but that would apply to most countries in the world so like there is a lot of great i'm not saying i'm not saying it's i'm not saying it's easy uh, i'm saying no. I know. Look, look, look. I know these are tough questions as well. Yeah. So it's not it's not necessarily easy, you know. But we do take that responsibility seriously. We have a committee that looks at it. Um, you know, we we believe that you know, in order to run a business effectively, you know, we have to make these types of decisions. And you know, I take it I take it seriously myself, and know that know that when you're having material impact on the world. You have responsibilities that, that follow that. Could you guarantee, for example, that you don't work with the government of Hungary? I, I'm 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 not going to go through and and list the people that we work with or don't work with. Yeah, you know, I may not even know. Well, I tell you what, I tell you, but, but, let me tell you why that question is important. It's not so much whether or not you are working with the country of, with Hungary. The point being is you could be working. This is a point Andreas made. You could be working with a country which is now an open and fair democracy, but could easily go down a slippery slope and descend into a country which becomes essentially authoritarian dictatorship, as Hungary has become. And at that point, all previous transactions are now is now data that be, can be used for oppression. And you've already provided the tools sure, for that. Sure, but but you should also know that, like, okay, if you let's let's just go through the uh, like an example, like if you are using a service in it, the way that you would be able to identify these things are, you would identify that you know 
there are there in chain analysis you would see a Hungarian exchange, um, a, a, a Hungarian business that allows people to go between, you know, local currency and Bitcoin. In essence, in an authoritarian regime, the regime can go and knock on the door and take all of that information anyway. You don't. It's not that we're providing information. The information about the individuals is is maintained at the exchange. And so in these authoritarian regimes themselves, you know, they can go in and reach in and, and take all of the data about their local citizens and oppress the people. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's that's No, it's the purchase. It's the purchase. You provide the you provide the spend behavior, not the fact that they own cryptocurrency. No, but but the actual data about what people have done is is also is also maintained at the exchange. I mean, but okay, let's, I mean, yes, I it's think not. It's, well, it's only the transactions at the exchange, not the actual, you're providing the layer of purchase yeah. information, whether or not they've used a dark market or such. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I think that, I mean, in a, in a, in a situation like that, where there are fast changes in how a regime works, we would obviously assess that on an ongoing basis. Yeah, uh, I guess, all I'm really getting at with this, and I, look, I'll be honest, I came onto the, firstly, I, I was surprised you wanted to do it because, and fair play for you coming on, and, and I think you've been fair in answering my questions, but like, I don't like the company at all. It's, to me, chain analysis is antithetical to Bitcoin. And yes, you can make the argument, and I think you've done that on multiple occasions about what about the pedophiles? And I, and you know, that is a great thing that a you know, pedophile network is taken down, but it doesn't stop pedophiles operating. It doesn't stop, you know, it doesn't, you're not going to stop criminals being criminals. Criminals already have more privacy than most people. They're, they're quite ingenious. And also there's a lot of moral judgment here. For example, sanctions. Like, do you personally think sanctions are a good thing? It's not actually relevant whether I think sanctions are a good thing or not. What I, what, well, what it is. I, you have to sleep, you have to sleep, sleep with your decisions. Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, what about in Iran that they can't get certain medicines to treat people with coronavirus because of the sanctions? But but these are so. Yeah, I I I take you know I take these types of things and you know I do think about them and they definitely have an impact on. But I can't. I'm not going to change. I'm never. I'm not. I'm not necessarily going to change any of these laws, right? So. Uh, what we but it's what you stand for as a as if as a person. Do you stand for sanctions or do you stand against them? Do you provide tools to help people get around sanctions or do you help provide the tools which punish people for trying to get around the sanctions? It's where do you stand? I mean, my view on sanctions is that I understand the theory behind it. They just always harm the wrong people. If you look at North Korea, Iran, it doesn't doesn't force change. It doesn't well, well, lead to okay. So let's let's it let's just, go to the, it just oppresses the people. Let's go. Let's go to the example Sorry, of North finish. Korea. Let's go to the example of North Korea. So yes, the North Korean people are an oppressed people, and yes, mm -hmm. I think that like we should try. We have a duty to try and liberate people from that oppression. Like it's very clear to me. However, like the sanctions regime, like even recently when we had a webinar on this, you know, it is possible for using our software to prevent millions of dollars who are stolen from legitimate people around the world to stop that money in transit before it goes towards funding nuclear programs in North Korea. So the like, nuclear program in North Korea isn't a post Bitcoin 
um, program. Um, no, but but hold on. How does how does North Korea generate enough income? And you know, I, I don't want to like. I'm not happy that North Korea does not pay for the healthcare and well-being of its people. Like, I would rather North Korea not spend money on nuclear weapons and spend money on providing education, healthcare, and you know, basic, basic human rights to its people. But at the end of the day, you know, North Korea, you know, has been shown to use stolen cryptocurrency to fund its operations. And yes, and but what I'm saying you're not you're not stopping the North Korean regime. The North Korean regime what? exports uh, exports its population into Russia to as slave labor. Sure, uh, I'm not doing well, I'm not, they, I can't do everything. I can't do everything. No, what right? I'm saying but is I can I can just, try and help um, I can try and help, you know, if there's, you know, several, you know, if you look at the GDP of North Korea, GDP of North Korea is somewhere around 10 to 15 billion dollars a year. You know, if you look at the amount of mm-hmm. cryptocurrency that, they're, that they're stealing from exchanges, it's an, it's not an insignificant amount of money. And so, so the sanctions regime actually allows seizure of those assets in order to stop it from going to that regime. So in that case, you know, I think we can all be in agreement that we don't want that money going to fund, potentially fund nuclear programs in North Korea. Of course, I, I don't want it to, but I don't think it stops the North Korean nuclear program, and uh, I don't think it stops the Iranian nuclear program. But yeah, in and I don't think it actually stops Maduro from um, human rights abuses in Venezuela. But what the sanctions always tend to harm is the people at the bottom. Maduro is still able to uh, have a nice steak with salt lick, and he's able to drink his bottles of cognac or whatever he does with his cronies, but it's the people at the bottom who are unable to get food and medicine, who are starving and eating from rubbish trucks. So I'm fundamentally against sanctions as a tool. So I'm fundamentally against a tool you've provided to to oppress people and to make the lives of the poorest and worst off in places like Iran and Venezuela more difficult. But I'm not. I'm, so I'm I don't author. Do I don't author. I don't author the sanctions. Uh, but you know, I think that there have been examples where the sanctions regime has been used. No, but I'm. I'm telling you that the there are in the examples that where I have seen sanctions be used recently, particularly when it comes to cryptocurrencies. It's been used to. It's been used to effectively target individuals who were trafficking fentanyl into the US killing people it's been used to target people who have actually you know sent targeted ransomware campaigns to US hospitals potentially killing people and it's been used to prevent you know money going to north korea that potentially goes towards nuclear programs and that you know is something that the whole world can agree on as as being good so i'm not saying that all sanctions and and again, it's 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 not to say that you know there's no harm with sanctions. That there's a lot of you know these things are these things are not always that easy to 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 look at. Um, in these particular instances, I think it's also important for people to know that you know these are individuals that get listed on these lists that are actually usually also involved with criminal indictments as well. See what I what I think is I don't think you stop crime. I don't think you're a deterrent. I think you're a tool for catching criminals. 
I don't think you're a deterrent. If Bitcoin didn't exist and chain analysis didn't exist, uh, there would still be pedophile networks. They would find another tool. There would still be drugs being uh, distributed. There would still be fentanyl finding its way into the, into the US. There would still be uh, sanctions. I don't think you stop it. But at the, at the, the cost of providing a, a tool for catching criminals, you've removed financial privacy for billions of people. And financial privacy is tied to freedom. It's tied to freedom of expression, freedom of association. It's tied to religious freedom. And I'm wondering, you as an individual, how much value you put on freedom or whether you actually think these tools are much important or whether it's just the fact that you've created a successful business and and perhaps you've compromised your, your own principles. I mean, I, I think, that, I mean... I, I disagree that we've compromised financial privacy for billions of people. You can still use Bitcoin today in a private way. I can't. Yes, you can. How? My, my, my All my addresses are tied in, in your software, and if I was to choose it to do something which is a moral judgment for me, I have to consider it. Everybody but now has to consider the fact that any transaction they do might be within might be tracked within chain analysis and if they try to use coinjoin to avoid it we're also aware that that is something else that you guys are trying to track and that is also something so it's it, whenever somebody tries to build a tool for privacy you're trying to undo it but you, but you can you can essentially find ways to maintain privacy in bitcoin transactions you can have your own wallet you can interact with other people on a peer-to-peer -peer basis that doesn't necessarily need to go through a service very very difficult to do that, that no that now though and, and it's because this isn't this isn't about look i get it right i get we all have to follow the the bullshit laws of the government you know, I have to pay tax. I don't want to pay tax. I have to do it because if I don't, I'm going to go to court and potentially end up in jail or face a fine. I get it. I'm just wondering, I don't see how you can be a, a Bitcoiner and support a tool which is designed for freedom and then build a tool which supports oppression. Well, it, it's only a tool for freedom if people can access it. And it's only a tool for freedom if the world understands and realizes the potential for the technology. And for that, we, needed, we need to build a business that protects the integrity of that system. And we need to find ways that are you know, using the rule of law in the countries that we've chosen to live in for them to also you know, say that it's something that, that, is, that, can be, that is used for legitimate purposes and is um, something that, that we should promote. So if I went on, do you know the website Hive One? What's that? Hive One? Hive One, do, yeah. Do you know Hive One? No. It ranks people. It's just ranks. It's good. Good finding people who. It's good for me for finding people to interview on the show. But if I went back and say polled everybody who's been on my show and said, "What do you think of chain analysis? What do you think the general sentiment would be?" After or before this episode. Oh, no, before this. Like, just generally in the market, what do you think the general sentiment around chain analysis is with Bitcoin people? Well, I, I think that, you know, many of the people that have built, many of the people who have, you know, actually interact, if you polled every single Bitcoin out there. No, 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 no. Just like, just, just 
the, the likes of the Andreas, the Safedeans, the Jack Moes, the Jimmy Songs, all the people who are out there kind of promoting and talking about but Bitcoin. That, but, but that's like, you know, that, that's a very specific part of the Bitcoin audience. And, and I think that like one of the interesting things is that you want this to be a global, you want, you want, you want to see billions of people use Bitcoin. You need billions of people to be able to use Bitcoin. You need billions. Actually, of- I don't. I want. I don't. It's not the number. It's the, not the number. I want people to be able to use. I want people to have financial privacy and be able to access a tool where they have censorship resistance, which they don't have without financial privacy, and they have seizure resistance, and they are not. Uh, they are able to escape oppression from the government. That's all I want. You can do. And I you can start do that. With five people and fifty. You can do that. Not you really, can do that. You can really do that now. by holding a private key to Bitcoin, and you could be anywhere in the world, and no one could, no one could touch you. Yeah, but but how do I get that Bitcoin? You either go through a regulated business because that's the way the world works, or you meet someone mm. and you swap you swap cash for Bitcoin, or you mine it. Yeah. So those those yeah, are yeah. It's just made it. It's just. It's just made it really difficult, and and I, it's I also find made it, it. It's also made just, it much much simpler. So either uh, you give it, but, either, but the trade off hasn't been worth it. So, but but this is the choice. So this is the amazing thing about having the underlying network be a permissionless open system for the world is that if you want, you can sit somewhere in the Saharan desert with a private key that no one else has access to, and you have absolute freedom right? You can also get access to that through a regulated financial institution that actually, you know, is promoting this idea that you have and making it more popular through making it more trustworthy and accessible. And those two things are not contradictory. And, and well, maybe everyone, the, maybe, uh, maybe everyone sorry. eventually agrees at the end of the day that we should all, you know, Right now, again, we're all sitting in our own like little space capsules, and we could all have mm-hmm. our have our private keys in our pockets. Um, or it could be that we trust some the, a lot of the world's population that have actually interacted with Bitcoin trust some central institutions to manage their 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 Bitcoin. So these yeah, are the see, types of things the, that can also evolve. Sahara. Yeah, no, I get it. But the guy in the Sahara, right? The only the only use it has if if at some point he can sell it or spend it and at the point he's spending it i'm assuming he's flagged on your system but it's like oh this is an anonymous person we don't know this one yet okay so we need to find this one and at some point just some small mistake it could be a service they use that you're tracking could end up putting them that could end up destroying their privacy and i guess what i'm getting at is that it's very hard like i get every defense you've got i get it but bitcoin for me was about financial privacy it's about censorship resistance it's about seizure resistance and i'm very anti a lot of practices by the state i'm certainly very anti sanctions i'm anti a lot of the judgment of what is criminal and what is not criminal so it's very hard for me to look at a service like yours and say and and and, and agree with it and very hard when it feels like it's a service which bends the knee to the state and provides tools which can be used for oppression and I really struggle with that. And I, I, I really struggle with the thought that anyone can say they're pro-Bitcoin and be building tools that support oppression. It's just really hard for me. No, I understand that. But I think that, I think that hopefully, you know, what I've sort of described is sort of where we are on that spectrum. Like, 
where we put our values. And I think that it's also about um, understanding that there can be a a spectrum of people that are interested in Bitcoin and not necessarily everyone needs to have exactly the same views about how the government should and can behave. Yeah, no, that that's a fair point. Bitcoin is for everyone because it is permissionless. So, all right, listen, look, I I, I think you've uh, I think you've been very fair in answering some you know, pretty pokey questions. Um, is there anything you want to add at the end? <laughs> no, I just uh, like I really appreciate being being pushed on these things and the opportunity to actually you know demonstrate what what chain analysis stands for and give a little bit of my uh, a bit of my personal opinion. And I hope that. If I, my popularity on the list of previous guests was was really bad before, hopefully I've moved up one ranking on this uh, on this website that you have. Usually, this is a bit where I ask people to tell them where to find the business, but I don't. I obviously don't want people to find your business. <laughs> you can. <laughs> That's a tough one for me to do, but they'll find it anyway. Um, but listen, look, I appreciate you coming on. I'm not sure if you'll do it again. Um, if you did, I would probably even sharpen my arguments a little bit. And I would still come at you for these exact exact same points. But I do appreciate you coming on. You've been very fair game. Thanks so much. All right. So what do you think of that one? Did you enjoy that one? Tough one for me because I don't want to give somebody a hard time, but I just feel like someone like Chain Analysis, they deserve it. They, they need to be grilled. Now, personally, I don't think I could be ever convinced that a company that analyzes the blockchain and provides information to governments eroding our privacy is a good thing. I think also there are too many moral calls to take into account, specifically with regards to government. Who would you work with? Would you work with a dictator? If you wouldn't work with a dictator, well, what about a company which is going down a slippery slope, maybe like Turkey or like Hungary? Or what happens to countries right now which maybe are an open and fair democracy and then slip down into some kind of authoritarian state in the future and they have access to this kind of data. And whilst I obviously support the prevention of paedophile rings, this argument has a flip side. It's very easy for someone like Jonathan to put out that argument and say, well, we catch paedophiles. Surely you want paedophiles caught and we stop nuclear weapons being built. Surely you want North Korea not to have nuclear weapons. Look, I completely understand that, but I don't think chain analysis stops the crime. I think the crime happens anyway. And I think this just helps catch the criminals. And I do not buy the argument that every single person should have their privacy eroded because of this. Because we have no idea what data that governments will use to use for coercion or oppression against their population. Whilst the analysis helps prevent all sorts of immoral and criminal activity, some of these immoral or criminal activities are subjective. And the tools can be used by authority and regime. So anything else, from anything from religious or racial oppression to the prevention of a free press. So we could even have journalists in a, a country where the free press is illegal being paid in Bitcoin and have that exposed by the software. So I just feel like it's an oppressive tool that reduces privacy and is inherently anti-Bitcoin. I definitely don't support them. But I do strangely respect Jonathan for coming on and facing up some of the criticisms and the tough questions. In hindsight, there's more things I would have liked to have asked him. And perhaps he'll come on in the future. Maybe maybe he won't. Anyway, always interested to hear your feedback on this. Please do hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 
Thanks to everyone who supports the show. You know, if you want to support the show right now, one thing you could do is help me out by checking out Defiance, my other podcast and the films I've making, specifically the films. I really do enjoy filmmaking. I want to do a lot more of it. They're available at my other website, which is defiance.news. I also hope you're all doing okay in the lockdown. If anyone wants to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 